Welcome to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. I'm Beth Shank, host of the podcast, along with our guest host, Dr. Shanda Demarest. Shanda is focusing on faculty members and educators from the School of Nursing Commitment, an important focus of the Nurses Climate Challenge. Listen to this fascinating discussion with Dr. Cecilia Tamori of Johns Hopkins University. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Shanda Demarest here. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm excited to share this conversation with Dr. Cecilia Tamori. Um, She's an associate professor and director of global public health and community health at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. She's actually an anthropologist by background, and she does a lot of work at the intersection of health, illness, health inequities, and specifically sociocultural drivers in the realm of of breastfeeding, actually, infant sleep and, and maternal child health more broadly. And she does a lot of work at this intersection of nursing and climate change within that context. Um, but our conversation went way deeper. Um, She's actually uh, originally from Budapest, Hungary, and she grew up during the Soviet era occupation. She talks a little bit about the culture of unquestioning during that time. We get into colonialism's influence on markets and power relations and like what's considered normal, specifically with this population of of infants and what that means for human health and how we take care of of babies and children. She tells me a little bit about um, her journey from being an anthropological scholar focused on maternal child health and having her eyes opened to the commercialization of infant feeding formula. And she shared about these age-old tactics of financial exploitation that were being used in the formula industry and was also being used in the fossil fuel industry. So that was her entree into climate change. And she realized that the climate crisis has been in part fueled by these same tactics that she was researching in the infant feeding industry. Um, And her area of anthropological reproduction and infant formula has not only an interconnection with climate in terms of those tactics used by markets and power to generate profits mainly, um, but that climate change also disproportionately impacts this population. Um, so she's she shared her passion with me for shedding light on these injustices, but also for preparing her students to do the same thing. And that um, for her brings to bear the biggest question of like, how can we inspire and, and how can we act? How can we inspire future generations? to act. We spent some time with new concepts to me, actually. Um, Super cool. I I learned about agnotology, commercial determinants of health, and corporate capture of health professionals. So again, thanks for spending some time with me today. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So hey, hello, Dr. Cecilia Tamori. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I know you through the Nurses Climate Challenge School of Nursing commitment. You're, you're faculty at Johns Hopkins, uh, but you have 
a very interesting background. I, I don't think you started as a nurse. Can you start at the beginning or, or whatever is comfortable for you and give us an idea of what your journey has been like to this intersection of, of nursing and climate? Sure. Um, so I am Hungarian. I grew up in Hungary. I'm still under the Soviet occupation. And uh, eventually when the Iron Curtain lifted, you know, um, we were able to travel. I think many of the listeners are now more familiar with what the uh, occupation force might uh, be like based on the recent horrible war uh, and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, but you know, it was a, a, a you know pretty transformative experience to come to a uh, democracy and to be able to explore new fields. And I ended up um, getting a scholarship to go to college in the U.S. And then um, after some time figuring out that maybe I should pursue anthropology, which you know it did not exist in that form in Hungary um, because it involves things like asking critical questions and uh, power relations, right? Those are not things that were really permitted uh, obviously during the occupation. Um, so I ended up uh, becoming an anthropologist and then eventually doing a postdoctoral fellowship in public health at the um, right next door to my current position at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Hopkins. And then um, I was faculty there for a while. And then after some more positions, I ended up um, taking this current role. And so um, I'm very interdisciplinary and I, I'm not a nurse, um, but I have worked alongside nurses throughout my career and always appreciated the insight that nurses had. Um, and have. And so it's really a, an honor and a privilege to work at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing and to be able to, you know, teach a new generation of nurses and to work alongside colleagues. So it's really, uh, it's been a, a wonderful experience. And so in this current role, I um, get to do a whole series of different kinds of initiatives. And one of them is um, that I serve as a director of uh, global public health and community health. And one of the efforts that we have within that, um, really in that set of initiatives is to look at our curricula and to really look at what where we need to be in, in the future. And of course, planetary health and climate change are right at the top of that list. And so um, I was very excited to be able to, you know, be a point person for the Nurses Climate Challenge and to incorporate the Nurses Climate Challenge into my own courses as well. Well, we consider you an honorary nurse. Um, Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, man. So I, I love that about you. I find it really intriguing that you started along the anthropological route coming from Hungary. Um, yeah, so not very common. <laughs> oh, super yeah. fascinating. So tell me a little bit about how you landed in that anthropology space. Um, I'm curious about sort of what informed that. What populations were you interested in? Is there a certain period that originally got you going down that path? Um, you know, I think it was partly the fact that I didn't really know what what disciplines were possible. So, you know, when you grow up in a, in a regime where you, you cannot question things, the social sciences don't, they're not particularly developed, you know, they were just not something that we could really um, think about. So when I 
ultimately I, I went to Swarthmore College for my undergraduate degree. And, you know, there were all these new new disciplines that I knew very little about. So um, even then, you know, I actually didn't study anthropology in an undergraduate uh my undergraduate experience. So I was actually a biology and education major. Um, you know, so I, I always had a passion for teaching so that I knew and, and I, and I really enjoyed biology. I still really do. Um, but didn't really know that much about how these different pieces, the science and the social scientific interests that I had fit together. Um, and so it took me a little while. I was, um, interested in, you know, maternal child health related things, but not necessarily framed that way. So understanding how you can enter a discipline, you know, what what the possibilities are, you know, at this intersection of anthropology and public health. I, I don't think I really knew either of those particularly well, um, but I knew I was interested in things like experiences of reproduction at large at the time, you know, I understood that I was interested in sort of embodied experiences, issues around gender, issues around inequity. You know, those are things that were always interests of mine. And then, you know, I figured, okay, well, let me look at what options there are for exploring these things. Again, not really knowing much about public health or nursing at the time, you know, just really didn't know. Um, and ended up thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe these interests fit somewhere between sociology and, and anthropology and medicine. And I still wasn't sure, you know, which way to go. Um, and actually was down to the wire deciding among those. Uh, so, so it was a little bit of, a little bit of coincidence and luck. And then I, I ended up realizing that anthropology is such a diverse discipline. It has, uh, sociocultural anthropology, biological anthropology that deals with evolution, linguistic anthropology that deals with languages, archaeological anthropology, you know, which I did understand was about archaeology, at least that was one out of four, um, but didn't really know much about, you know, the other subfields until I was in them. And then I realized, this is actually a pretty good fit. You know, um, you know, I have this cross, cross disciplinary interest in cultural issues, but I also had the biology, the evolutionary piece, um, and then, you know, a very strong interest in inequity and sort of how these triangulate in various um, areas of health, right? And so I think that's how I ended up in this space. Um, and then, you know, uh, worked on issues around, you know, reproduction. So within anthropology, I would still be slotted as sort of a scholar of the anthropology of reproduction. And, and um, I recently co-edited a handbook on the anthropology of reproduction for Rutledge with a colleague. So that was really, really wonderful of a project. And that itself is sort of um, trans subfield. So we had biological anthropologists and sociocultural anthropologists and um, even archeological anthropologists within that volume, which is wonderful. Um, but I also understood that the decisions that we make about issues around maternal child health and reproduction take place in, you know, the health arena, you know, so that's, I think, where the public health piece fit. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of straddle all of that in the work that I do. So I, I actually just have all these dimensions to my work. So I look a lot at issues around power relations and histories of what it is that we consider to be normal or standard. Um, so, you know, for issues around reproduction and, and about infant care, 
a lot of what we believe to be sort of normative standards that are often encoded within Western biomedical standards actually are products of colonialism. Um, and so that, you know, that's where anthropology can be really, really helpful because we can question, you know, well, what is it that, you know, human infants are like in their evolutionary context, you know, how do other mammals behave? What about other primates? Where does the, where do these, you know, where are the assumptions coming from? Are they actually based on the physiology of, you know, uh, <clears throat> these uh, organisms, you know, humans compared to other primates? Or are they coming from somewhere else? And it turns out for my topic, a lot of the things actually come from very recent historical developments that primarily were spread by empires. Um, the big one, of course, being the British Empire, because at one point, you know, uh, the British Empire had over half of the land of the entire world. I mean, just, you know, a, a very dominant force, but um, all of the relationships, you know, about what we consider to be sort of standard, often associated with, you know, good parenting, um, they're often just, you know, a couple hundred years old, often ideas that come from, you know, um, Western European elites that do not necessarily represent at all the world's population or have little to do with, you know, how um, our evolutionary history works or even how most people around the world take care of babies. Ugh. And when I think about what nursing students are learning in the classroom and all health profession students are learning in the classroom, and obviously this extends beyond the health discipline too, but what you're saying about culture informing what we understand care practices to be, perhaps opposed to physiological um, facts, that gets super sticky. So, so kind of leading into our conversation today, I was reading a little bit about you, Dr. Tamori, and your work, and I stumbled upon um, a commentary from you in Nature. And this this is like a, a perfect segue to that. Um, first of all, the, the title is Don't Feed the Doubt Machine. Um, and maybe I'll just read a little bit of this, and I would love to hear your your take on some of this work specifically related to maybe we can start with your area of focused research, which is maternal child health, reproduction, breastfeeding. And then I want to pick your brain a little bit on, on the climate aspects of that. So in here, you note um, the, the field of, and I might totally botch this word, agnotology. No, Ag that, you, that was perfect. That's right. Okay, good. The field of agnotology. So the study of deliberate spreading of confusion shows how ignorance and doubt can be purposefully manufactured. So so that's maybe in a little bit contrast to um, like cultural evolution of, of how care practices might shift over time. But this deliberate spreading of confusion, we're seeing this happen with, um, we're seeing this happen with vaccines related to COVID. We're seeing this happen with climate and we'll get there in a moment, but Here's something that you shared related to breastfeeding. So you note that much of your own work focuses on how the industry exploits scientific credentials to bolster false claims that undermine breastfeeding to increase the sales of formula milk and ultimately 
damage health. And we see the strategies and patterns recur across industries. They've been documented in tobacco, fossil fuels, pharmaceuticals, food, and more. This influence is so powerful that public health researchers consider it a distinct area of study commercial determinants of health, which I've never heard of before. Um, it's compelling, but also quite disturbing. So give us a little bit on that. Um, what led you down that path of investigating these um, commercial determinants of health, maybe first in breastfeeding, as that relates to um, some of this this nursing work? Then let's yeah. go to the climate direction. Absolutely. So I think... Um... So the colonial piece is actually a really great segue because it is related to power relations and exploitation. And so, you know, when uh, various uh, empires colonized the rest of the world, you know, they exploited people, they turned them into commodities, they exploited labor, they tore apart families. So all of that obviously had huge implications for families and ability to 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 breastfeed babies, um, most of whom were breastfed cross-culturally for a couple of years in, in most of the world and, and carried around and, and fed very frequently. So, you know, when when people are exploited and, and, and families are torn apart, you know, these are uh, often no longer possible or not in that form or, you know, people were forced to uh, feed other people's babies. I mean, there's just horrible things happening. But at the same time, as that kind of exploitation is happening, the empires are also setting up new markets. So during the late 19th century and early part of the 20th century, you also see sort of uh, a, a second wave of exploitation where companies are moving in um, to new places so that they can sell products. They're creating new markets for themselves. And uh, that happened with the early formula market uh, you know, quite, quite early, much earlier than I think most people realize way before the scandals, you know, became scandals because people were not really aware of what was happening. And then over time, the strategies became much more sophisticated, you know, and they're, and they are happening, you know, in other industries, but I was just mo most familiar with the topic that I was working on. So, you know, I knew that uh, colonialism had this other piece to it which is this expansion of markets. And that, and I knew that there, there was considerable historical work on how the um, colonial powers, and then later, of course, the post-colonial situation was also set up to facilitate these markets continuing to grow and exploit more people. I knew that there was aggressive efforts to expand the use of formula milks all over you know, what was considered then, you know, the third world, um, and that this was happening by, you know, what we sort of consider or what we call corporate capture of health professionals as one of the key, and scientists as one of the key pivots to doing this. So for example, there were symposia that were funded by industry where they created, you know, whatever the problem was nutritionally was to be solved with their product. There were health professionals who were um, incentivized to talk about whatever the product is. You know, they may have believed that the product was was you know useful, but they were certainly uh, also getting incentives to do so. Um, they had you know health professionals distributing free samples, you know, 
uh, all over in, in, in settings where, you know, these, these products were expensive, where water was uh, not safe, where they knew exactly, you know, that there would be severe consequences to these kinds of things. But, you know, it was, it, it's just profit, you know, so the, the interest of the corporation is simply to generate more profits. It is not, you know, necessarily, you know, what, what the nice images, which is, you know, this idea that they're helping people or that they were saving people. That was certainly a very nice thing to say, but it, it was not actually what was happening. So I knew this and I knew that, that of course accelerated over time to the point where it became a scandal, you know, where, where, you know, there were lots and lots of babies dying um, because of this aggressive marketing techniques, which included things like um, having people dress up as nurses, for example, people who are not even nurses, but also um, using actual nurses in many maternity care settings to, to distribute, essentially to become product representatives without them necessarily knowing that that's what they were doing. And then people, you know, um, either using, you know, unsafe water, um, diluting the product because there was not enough. And then, you know, um, because they were stopping lactation and lactation is all about that proximity and the continuous feedback mechanism, you know, then it's difficult to get back to lactation unless you have cultural knowledge about how to get back on. So, you know, so you have all this diarrheal disease and you have, you know, respiratory illnesses and you have a lot of deaths. Um, so I knew about this and I also knew that that never stopped. So I knew that these practices continue in new ways, in new forms. Um, they actually continued during the current formula crisis, which was also caused by corporate malpractice um, that was covered up for, for years. You know, there's more and more evidence about how this, uh, that is actually documented, but honestly, those of us who've done this research are not surprised at all because it's the same of what we've been reading all along. So I knew all of this, and and that's actually how I ended up, you know, in this whole um, intersection of climate and uh, and the commercial determinants of health, because I read more about the tactics of this particular industry, and then started realizing that in fact these tactics were not at all unique, which you know is I think often a surprise to any of us who work in whichever field we start in, because as you know, researchers, we tend to focus on a particular area, whatever that is. And so we know that area, but we are not experts in everything else. And so unless you are studying these practices specifically, most of us are ill-equipped to move across these kinds of domains. And so once I started reading across the different uh areas, I realized, wow, you know, there is an, you know, there's this entire world where actually these tactics just get repeated over and over and over again. And so I started reading about, you know, the tobacco industry. I started, um, I'm currently working on a project related to the opioid industry. We have an opioid industry documents archive. That's a collaboration between UCSF and Hopkins. And, and it, I mean, it, I could go from one meeting to another from the work that I do on lactation to the work that I do on opioids. And you could sometimes literally plug in the words, just substitute opioids and 
the formula industry and you literally see the same same tactics it's 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 shocking um and then you know i started working more on you know where else these uh similar tactics have been documented and and you know the largest area actually <laughs> is in the climate space and so learning more about how the industry knew for decades decades what was going to happen and the the devastating consequences of the use of fossil fuels and then systematically covered it up i you know i mean even now even though i know this and i teach this and i have it in my class you know i still find it just shocking and, and appalling and so i think that's that was the connection for me um and then also the more you start learning about climate related work you know i knew it was on my horizon because in lactation you know one of the so one of the major evolutionary <laughs> functions of lactation is actually you know precisely to deal with difficult circumstances so lactation was never you know some sort of like a luxury state which is how it's often depicted in the west <laughs> it's like not what it is it's it's a it's an evolutionary adaptation that is is about keeping babies alive so you know disasters right emergencies are, and infectious diseases like those are the kinds of evolutionary pressures under which this whole system evolved and so you know emergencies, disasters are the, the places where you see the vulnerabilities of infants in particular. And that's where the, you know, if you have infants who are fed uh, formula milks, commercial formula milks, they are particularly vulnerable in those kinds of situations, obviously, because of issues around water, because of issues around electricity, because of issues to the supply. So that, so you're opening up a whole door of, you know, malnutrition, dehydration, starvation, um, and infectious disease, which is horrendous, right? And so we knew this, you know, um, those of us working in the field, with the acceleration of disasters brought about by global warming and climate change, we're seeing this unfold, you know, all the time. I mean, all you need to do is look at the news. I mean, I look at Pakistan and the enormous floods. And my first thought is, what happens to those infants? Right. And the first thing that these companies do is they try to donate products into places that they know is going to be harmful and that may make them look good to Western audiences, but that are directly undermining local efforts. So actually the, the Pakistani uh, government issued statements about how, please don't send us this stuff that will undermine the health of our, our, our babies. Um, but this happens all the time. So I think about, you know, wildfires, what happens to the same babies? I think about the intersection of how this works with colonialism, where the impact of climate change disproportionately affect those countries that have used very few fossil fuels but you know the the for the former great empires that have you know built their uh their wealth on exploiting others and have generated you know they have used tons and tons of fossil fuels and and the the most of the disasters that are affecting people in, in the global south and within the global north it's people who are poor who are marginalized and who are disproportionately not white, you know, indigenous communities, um, 
black and brown communities are are much much disproportionately affected by all of these uh, terrible things that are happening due to climate change. So I always think about that intersection between the maternal child health piece and climate. And then of course, you know, when the pandemic started, right, the acceleration of infectious diseases. So, you know, so my work is sort of right in that nexus. So, so I think, you know, it was an, a, a something that I, that was something of interest to me, but I think it's a commercial determinants of health that allowed me to move across um, more and, 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 you know, honestly, it's been, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult realization, right? Once you make the realization that this is really happening, you know, how to counter um, the, you know, especially this, this very uh, systematic undermining of, of, you know, evidence that we really know um, yeah. that can be really harmful for people. It's, it's a difficult journey. I I'm, feel like I'm having the visceral responses to the ethics of this. Um, a lot of what you said, I, I didn't know. Um, I think about the fossil fuel industry and its exploitation of oh, just all of us. And specifically what you said about, you know, swapping out language with the commercial determinants of health. Um, I'm, I'm also thinking about how climate is, climate changes and, you know, will exacerbate, yes, the, the breastfeeding inequities, um, also the opioid crisis, also, you know, maybe there's some intersection there with tobacco, like just how complex um, the impacts are from from climate change. And that's, yeah, that's just one angle. Um, I can I can definitely see how you came to this from a very unique place. Oftentimes when I'm talking to nurses, if they are intrigued about the climate and health intersections, um, perhaps they're coming to it from this, this personal connection to their place or a personal connection to the environment. On the other end of the spectrum, oftentimes we'll, you know, meet nurses and health professionals who are caring for patients and clients and communities who are experiencing these health impacts and perhaps they're seeing greater instances of, you know, COPD or asthma exacerbations from air pollution or, um, you know, think about some of the folks caring for the the patients in Jackson, Mississippi within our own nation related to some of the flooding um, and having their eyes opened from the health angles. But hearing you describe this, um, yeah, from the commercial angle with your, you know, your research background is is very fascinating. Um, I'm curious when you're teaching this stuff, when you're having these conversations in your classrooms, like how far down this path are you going with your nursing and public health students? You laying it out on all, all, all out on the table. Like what does some of your courses look like? It's really, um, you know, I really try to make, I teach, um, health policy and, and some other, um, more specific project related uh, work, you know, especially in our DMP MPH program, which I, I lead. Um, so it's at the very, it's the intersection of public health and nursing. So I'm sort of right there um, in everything that I do, but the health policy course, um, you know, I would say, you know, we, we do little, little 
bits, right? So, you know, um, I think it's important for students to have different ways of thinking about things. So I, I try not to make courses in general about me, right? This is not, you know, an, you know, a course about, you know, Dr. Tomori's work, um, but it is about how we think about policy, right? And across different kinds of topics. And so um, I do have a very strong, you know, obviously equity centered um, framing throughout the course. And then I provide different uh, little windows, mini windows into different kinds of topics that people then can choose to explore further in various assignments, like uh, in their health policy briefs or in their individual health policy dialogues, some of which I think you saw um, on Twitter. So we really, uh, we I don't necessarily get in depth at these things, but I do include um, issues around global health, I include issues around uh, the acceleration of the impacts of climate change and and a little taste of some of the commercial determinants of health around that and some other topics that have similar issues around policy because, you know, as you can see, the corporate tactics around influencing policy are, they have profound consequences like they have in, in blocking any action around climate change. So the casting data on the science and, you know, sowing data in general, and, and, if, and I'm sure you've read Merchants of Doubt, um, but that would be sort of, you know, these are the classic kind of tactics. They were extremely effective and they really have an impact on, you know, policy priorities and setting that agenda and of getting any movement, you know, if, if there's no urgency, people don't realize it's really an actual problem that you can do something about, then you don't have policy action. And then you have this enormous in, inequitable impacts. And so I think that's sort of the direction that I take it in. And, you know, and then I really try to make sure that we always integrate the climate piece. So rather than saying, okay, I'm going to just do this topic this week and, and, and that's what we're going to focus on. One of the things that I've changed in my own practice as I've learned more is that everything that we talk about could have a connection to the climate piece. And I think that's where that relationship that you talked about comes in. You know, I came in to this topic through my own, you know, interests and, and and watching the impacts of, you know, on particular people and populations that were marginalized, nurses in my classes are seeing the impacts of climate change in every setting, from acute to community care, everything they do, they know, they see it. But I think we have not made a concerted effort to draw that out for them. We haven't really highlighted that this these are direct drivers of what's happening and that we can do something about this. So I really try to kind of mention it throughout so that when they get to the end, they, they feel more confident being able to say something about why this is an area that nurses can can be, you know, true experts because they really are. They're experts in this. You give no excuses. Um that's one of my visions for for some of this work is helping people understand, you know, 
not only climate, but extrapolate that to planetary health, extrapolate that to just the environment broadly. We're creatures on this planet. Everything we do harkens back to that fact. And there are so many um, valid um, critical disciplines at, you know, environmental researchers and climate scientists that are, you know, are the ones doing the science at this work. But at the same time, I think it needs to be an aspect of every single discipline of every single sector. And you are leading that work in the nursing school and the, in the public health school at, at Johns Hopkins. So um, thank you. So perhaps you have a vision for this where you probably have, you know, 50 visions, but Dr. Tamori, I would love to hear from you. Um, what is your hope for the future at this intersection? Which is such an important question. I mean, I think our visions are, are quite aligned. You know, I, I'm hoping my ambition is that every single person, you know, becomes aware of these issues and that they feel empowered to be able to take action because because literally our it, it is an existential issue you know it is the the existential issue that we all need to participate in so we need everyone you know to be able to participate to feel that they can participate um people know they just need to um be provided a little bit of support so that they can feel that they can, you know, say something important about this. But I think, you know, on a on a smaller scale in terms of, you know, what I would like to see is every single person, you know, in all nursing schools, knowing about planetary health and climate change and and acting in concert. That is, that is my vision, you know, towards a, an equitable advocating and working on um, more equitable systems so that we can actually uh, live on this planet. Um, that would be the vision. That's a beautiful vision. Well, thank you for walking us through what this work means to you, uh, how you share it with your students and beyond super grateful for the work you do and for our conversation together today. Thank you so Same, much. Same. Thank you. culture eats strategy every time, and it is fascinating to hear Dr. Tamori's exploration of culture, language, and norms on health and outcomes, especially the powerful influence they have on our human response to climate change. Thank you, Shanda, for the terrific interview, and to Dr. Tamori for sharing your fascinating work. Thank you all for listening, and please check us out at envirn.org, and please subscribe, comment, and share the podcast. Talk to you next time.